Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll be considering verses 22 and 23. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. We continue here in the book of Romans. Uh, a few days ago, I sat down with a couple of my children. They had uh, some conflict. I don't specifically remember what, but each of them had obviously lost their temper. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't the first time, <laughs> it won't be the last. But when I asked them what happened to try to understand what uh, conflict or, you know, frustration, hurt, pain, whatever it was that happened, uh, I noticed something that I had been noticing previously, that the first thing out of their mouth was the other person's name. The first thing out of their mouth was the other person's name. In other words, they began with blame. They began with blame. To be, to be clear, in, in some cases, what may at first sound like blame is actually an accurate and clear and true articulation of a particular offense by a perpetrator, by an abuser, or something like that. That, that being true, though, with my children, mutual offense is always the consistency when it comes to their common discord. So each of them is culpable. Each of them has something that they have contributed. And so a current lesson that, that I'm learning as a parent, uh, I'm learning as a human being, and certainly learning uh, as a parent and trying to teach my children uh, about conflict is this. Start with you. Start with you. Meaning start by confessing and repenting of your sin. Confession not blame is the way to peace. Church, let me say that again so that that sort of sets us on our way. Confession, not blame, is the way to peace. This is what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Matthew 7 verse 5, First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus calls his disciples to be those who acknowledge and deal with their sin first, their sins first, not as a way of ignoring or excusing the sins of others, but rather, hear this, as a way to maintain moral integrity within the world. This is, this is the way that we maintain moral integrity. Today, I want to be really clear God, help me. I want to press meaning and understanding into our current cultural moment. Because to be sure, I have been feeling it today. This is Saturday evening when I'm recording this. I've been feeling it today at the end of a week. Heavy. And so specifically, I want to suggest to you that the public witness of the Christian church has been severely wounded. The public witness of the Christian church has been severely wounded. Mind you, Jesus' name is not wounded. By his providence, his infinite beauty is unmissable through his divine and sovereign election. But our integrity has been soiled as a people. We have focused and announced the sins of our neighbors while ignoring our own. We have become so worldly in our thinking that we actually even begin to trust that blame is the way to peace. 
that accusation is the way to unity. But we must start with confession and repentance. And today, I want to do that together. So I'd like to pray. And then I'd like to walk through this text as we continue in Romans, Romans 3, 22 and 23. After that, I want to share with you how I think this particular passage, at least in, in concept, is, has been egregiously misapplied in our current day. Then I want to lead us in specific confessions about how we then should live as followers of Jesus and then look to Christ, who is our great and gracious peacemaker. Sound good? You pumped? Let's go. Let's ask God for help. Father, help us. When we come to your word, we come with a lot of confusion, pain, hurt, and certainly we're coming with all of that. We're coming weary. We're coming confused. We're coming bitter. We're coming angry. We're coming sad. Perhaps some of us are coming joyfully, coming encouraged. And so we're coming to you as a people, but we're coming to you in different places as individuals. And so help us. Help us to surrender to your word. Help us to be united by your word. Help us to come underneath the banner and authority and power of your word. Help us to repent. Help us to confess. Help us, Father, to be a people who ultimately are marked by Jesus so that they would know, that the world would know that we are yours through our love for one another and our love for you. So help me, Father, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word and help us all as we desire to obey you, uh, to submit ourselves to you and to do just that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let's look at it together. Romans chapter three, verse 22 and 23 says this. We began looking at 22 last week and now we'll continue to see the whole thing and then on into 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are the very words of God, and we say thanks be to God. Consistent with Paul's uh, earlier address, he reiterates that there is no moral difference between Jews and Gentiles. There is no salvific distinction, he says, between the religious person and the secular person. We, they, all of us are all under the, the law, all under sin. See, one of the errors that Paul understood in the minds of his first readers is that they assigned or rather pronounced moral judgment on someone or someone else simply because of who they were, perhaps because of their ethnicity, because of their, their health whether it be good or bad, or their finances, whether they be wealthy or in poverty. And today, isn't it true, we do the exact same thing, don't we? It is the regular habit of adult human beings in America to not simply think that someone is wrong when they have a different political view, for instance, but that they are evil. We pronounce moral judgment just like Paul's first readers did. But to his first audience and to us, Paul says there's no distinction because we have the same spiritual need. We have the same spiritual need. And this need manifests in two primary ways. And this is what Paul speaks about in verse 23. There's no distinction into verse 22. And into verse 23, what does he say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first reason that there is no difference in our spiritual need is because all have sin. This is Paul's way of summarizing the the first two and a half chapters of what he has written 
to this church, these followers of Jesus, these Christians in Rome in the first century, specifically about Jews and Gentiles. He has been communicating that all are sinners, that all have sinned, all are under the law, all are under sin. The verbal tense, though, that Paul chose to use here is the the aorist tense, which is really an uncomplicated uh, tense. So Paul is saying something has been done and, and complete, and it's once and for all. It's definite. It's, it's in the past, and yet it's final and lasting in its effect. In other words, we all sinned. That's why it has this sort of finality to the language. That, so th- this verbal, though this verbal aspect is unsophisticated, then, when we think about the nature of sin, much should come to our minds. Much should come to our thinking. When we think about the fact that all have sinned, there should be a lot that comes to our mind. And I'll borrow from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose exposition of this text in the fall of 1955 has been deeply helpful for me. He's a preaching hero of mine. And in fact, he chose to begin in chapter three when he did his Roman series uh, back there in 1955. He began in Romans three and he preached from Romans for 13 years, most of it on a Friday night, even before they got to the Sunday gathering. So I don't think we'll be going through this for 13 years, and yet we'll be going through it for a while. So you have Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, to thank for that, perhaps. Or, or actually, no, it's, it's God. God's desire, I, I hope. Um, it, here's what, here's what jo- Jones says when he's commenting on verse 23. Here are six different definitions that he gives us about sin. First, he says that sin is missing the mark. God gives us the target, if you will, of his holy word, and we miss it in thought, in word, in deed, and in our affections. Secondly, sin is lawlessness. God has given us his law, and we choose to live, as, as we read about and talk throughout the New Testament, we choose to live as a law unto ourselves, that we choose based on our will and our way. So we, sin is lawlessness. Thirdly, sin is unrighteousness. God has made it clear what is right, what is true, and we are not it in and of ourselves. Fourth, sin is a trespass. God has spoken limits into existence, and we cross those boundaries all the time. Fifth, sin is iniquity. God has revealed goodness, and humanity has rejected that goodness in direct and even in indirect kinds of ways. Sixth, sin is the transgression of the law. God has given us specifically his law, the law, and we break it. So when Paul is saying that all have sinned, he is saying that all have missed the mark, that all are lawless, that all are unrighteous, that all trespass, that all have iniquity, that all of us transgress the law. But this is not just a personal issue of of moral failure. We, We often think about sin as a personal issue, personal moral issue, don't we? But in truth, the problem of sin is within us and it's all around us. It's in you, it's in me, it's in us as a people, it's in us as a human race, and it is all around us. See, the truth of sin is that it's much worse than we often presume. Sin is in my heart and it's in our hearts and it's pervasive in our world. Or as Bible teacher Louis Burkhoff explained, that sin is a guilt and pollution. Sin is a guilt, meaning my moral standing, and and sin is also a pollution, something that has infected our entire existence or the entire human experience. And this duality of sin is understood through what theologians call original sin. 
This is the doctrine which states that we are born, all of us human beings, born with the stain of sin already upon us individually and as an entire people, as an entire species, as all of human race. And Paul teaches in Romans chapter 5 this. In fact, just turn to the right to Romans chapter 5. Perhaps just one or two pages. Romans 5 verse 12 through 14. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So for years, philosophers, secular philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and uh, Jacques Rousseau have debated whether human beings are born a particular kind of way, whether they are inherently good or inherently evil. Well, the Christian worldview and what the Christian Bible teaches us is that both are true. God creates Adam. He creates all of humanity in his image. And then he blesses and says, this is very good with inherent goodness and value and worth. However, what what Paul helps us to see here is that by Adam's sin, then we are all born with this curse, with this guilt, with this pollution. And so sin is a guilt within the self and it's in the heart, but it's also a pollutant throughout the entire fabric of all of creation. Nothing is as it should be. This duality should lead us then to a couple of things, a couple of responses, to personal confession and to corporate lament. That means I, I, I admit and confess and seek forgiveness for sin that I have personally committed. That's what Christians do. But we also acknowledge our collective angst, culpability and within the world's brokenness and for the world's brokenness. Or as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, all of creation is groaning, longing for redemption. We groan and we ache, we lament with all of creation. Additionally, so this is is how Paul is saying there's no distinction because all have sinned. That's what he's saying. But he's also saying there is no difference in our spiritual need because all fall short of the glory of God. See, whereas Paul's statement, all have sinned, is in the aorist tense, fall short of the glory of God is actually in the present tense. Paul then is telling us we all have a condition in us in our past, which is sin, which is final, which is true, which is is still part of who you and I are as human beings to this day. But also this condition leads to a present reality in which we are all always falling short of the glory of God. It is constantly and consistently happening. We fall short of the glory of God because we are sinners and because we are undone. See, we're falling short of the glory of God by our sinner. As as Pastor John Piper has put it, that God's glory is the visible display of his worth and beauty. This is why in Ezekiel, the writer uh, personifies glory, saying this. Hear hear this from Ezekiel 43, verses 4 and 5. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face. Outside of uh, 
the, the writer's response to all of this. We, we get a picture of God's glory. That God's glory is, is the reality of his quality, of his character, which is manifesting in his very presence. But our sin, in our sin, we deny his worth. Our sin is a betrayal then also of his beauty. Therefore, in our sin, we are unfit for the presence of God. We are unfit to be in his glory, in his presence. In our sin, we're falling short of the glory of God. We are, we are falling short from his presence, and therefore we are falling short of even having relationship with him because of our sin. But we're also falling short of his glory because we are undone. See, paradoxically, we fall short of glory, but we were made for it. We were made for his presence. We were made for relationship. We were made for glory. Not only are we generally made for relationship with God, but as his image bearers, we're meant to enjoy and even display emanate, broadcast his glory. And because of sin, as, as Pastor J.R. Vassar explains in his book, really helpful book, Glory Hunger, he says our greatest need is to have glory restored to us. He says we are glory deficient. This is because we're falling short. This is because of our sin. This is why we search, hear this, for earthly sense, for any earthly sense, of glory all the time, whether it's through our parents' praise or in vocational excellence or success or personal fulfillment or in our national identity and government. We are daily falling short of glory and we spend our lives trying to find it. But the good news is that we are undone. In other words, that God has not done away with us outside of his glory. That he, the good news is that, that one day we will be restored to glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 21. Let's, let's look at it since we're almost there anyway. Turn to the right. You're still in Romans 5. Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And hear this, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so we, we are undone. We're longing for this glory that we daily are falling short of until the Lord Jesus returns, sets things to rights in the fullness of of his glory will yet again be restored to his creation, his people. See, even though we are falling short of the glory of God in this life, we are promised in the age to come, the fullness of his glory and his people will be brought together. But this is the glory that we are kept from right now. This is because of our sin. So Paul is saying that we have all, we all fall short of the glory of God. He says, we all have sin. Therefore, the response of God's people in the middle of all of this should be that we weep, that we confess, that we repent. When we acknowledge and understand that we have fallen short because of our sin, our response should be humility. Our, our response should be gratitude that the Lord has made plain to us our sin, that he has revealed these things to us. We should weep, we should confess, we should repent. But in truth, we don't. The church does not consistently, regularly repent. This, this is true of me and my heart. This is true of you. It's true of us as a church family. See, instead, we see an armed insurrection at the nation's capital. Instead, when we see 
uh, a standing ovation at the New York State Senate for the legalization of abortion after 24 weeks. Instead, when an unarmed black man is shot and killed by police, instead of confession and weeping and lament and repentance, we blame. We start with someone else. Instead of repenting, we say silly things. I don't know if you've heard of this past week, but particularly it has become so loud in my ears and even in my heart that there is wrong on both sides. As if Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, specifically an original sin in general, are escape clauses for the church for accountability and confession because no one is perfect. Let me ask you this. To any who has said things like this, that that we have heard um, this past week, that we have heard perhaps for the past number of years, as long as we've been paying attention attention to politics and the, the political spectrum in our country and to our sort of national heritage and what it means to be a Republican or Democrat in this sort of divided space and nation that we have. How, how many who, who have said there is wrong on both sides have also said, here's what my side has done wrong. And those who have confessed, how many of those, those confessions have been followed by the words, but followed by a more scathing review of their opponents? We do not start with ourselves. And even if we concede that we have not been perfect, we always explain why our opponent's sins are greater than our own. This is what we have watched from the world and church. Please hear me. I love you. We have adopted and applied it within the church. We no longer confess. We blame and believe that will lead us to unity and to peace, not just in the political landscape, but in our marriages, with our children, with our friendships, with our group, with those closest to us. We begin with blame and not with confession. We start with someone else. We do regularly, (laughs) we do all the time what we would never accept from children, blame and lack repentance. That's not the Christian response. Christians, in this, we are sinning. We even can use passages like we've just read, Romans 3, 22 and 23, as our logic that we all fall short, right? And that we all sin. Nobody's perfect. It's all good. There's a problem on both sides. There's sin on both sides. There's wrong on both sides. And in doing that, no one confesses. No one laments. No one weeps and no one repents. Through Acts, the early church is revealed to be a completely countercultural community. And scholar Larry Hurtado argues that this unique people developed a set of values within pagan society, which were categorically defining for them. In his book, The Destroyer of the Gods, Hurtado explains that the early Christian community had five basic social values. We've reviewed these before, and I think it's important to bring them up again within our context, this passage, and also in our current moment as a country. Five basic social values that he identified in the early first century church. Racial justice. In other words, they they sought unity across racial barriers. Secondly, economic justice. They took care of the poor. Thirdly, they were pro-life. They were constantly uh, caring for discarded children that nobody wanted. Fourth, 
They were committed to what, what we would call traditional sexuality, heterosexual monogamy, and a state of understanding of gender. Fifth, they were conciliatory in nature. In other words, they confessed wrongdoing and forgave those who wronged them. These were five distinct values of the early church in the first century. Now, two of those values seem incredibly progressive, don't they? In in other words, racial reconciliation and economic justice. These two sorts of things often seem pretty progressive from our 21st century worldview when we look back. Two of those values seem really conservative, that they are pro-life and traditional sexuality. That means that contrary to popular parlance, The kingdom of Jesus doesn't happen to have shades of conservatism and shades of liberalism as part of it. Rather, God's people, God's common grace, rather, uh, there are king, because of that, there are kingdom ideas that, that by his grace have been adopted by Democrats and other kingdom ideas that have been adopted and incorporated in the Republican platform. In, In other words, The church doesn't happen to be a little bit Democrat and a little bit Republican. The church is the people of God, and each of these modern expressions of humanity and society and thinking, by God's grace, happen to have reflections within them of his people. So what I'm trying to say to you is that the church is not a little bit like the world. By God's good grace, the world happens to reflect the image that he has impressed upon them except for one, except for one of those values. You notice that one is left out. One kingdom value eludes both political persuasions, confession. See, the church is meant to be category defining. We are neither in our own language, Republican nor Democrat. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are a completely different third way set apart from the rest and from all of it, especially through confession. And I want to be candid now. I want to zoom in as much as I possibly can for your joy, for mine, for the sake of our moral integrity as a people that sometimes it might seem like I or our leadership team or as our church as a whole might, might be more willing to speak out against the president than for him. Perhaps you, you may hear us critique or hear me critique a Republican agenda or platform or person rather than the others. And I want to explain why this is the case, why you might be feeling that, sensing that from me specifically as, as elder for teaching here at Church in the Square, why you may sense that from our community as a whole. And then I want to lead us into some repentance. First, This administration is unique. What what we have been walking through in our time, I think we can all admit that this administration is is unique. So the season we have just gone through and are still in many respects in the middle of um, is difficult to compare with any other. Let's let's just leave it at that for now. Second, I, I am committed and we must be committed as a people to err on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized and the victimized. Third, we will always err on the side of confessing sins within the community of faith before we point the finger at the world. Please please hear this, because this is going to guide our time from here on out. We need to be ready and in our first move to confess our sin way before we point the finger at anyone outside of the context of our church community. This is Matthew 7 that Jesus 
writes about, judge not lest you be judged. First deal with the log or the plank in your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to help your brother. This is what we need to do first. We need to work on extracting the sin from our own hearts, confessing, repenting of that sin that we might be useful in our Lord's hands as he brings about his kingdom in this world. See, ever since the Reagan administration, then this means that, that we may sound like we are being more critical of Republicans than Democrats. Why? Because it was then that the sh- a shift took place. See, ever since the Reagan administration, that, that means being critical of the willingness of the American Christian, of, the Amer- of American Christianity, particularly white followers of Jesus, to conflate spiritual life with their political affiliation with the Republican Party. Historian uh, Kristen Cobes Dumais explained that the Christian right may not have swung the election to Reagan, but it did succeed in securing the loyalty of evangelicals to the Republican Party. From Reagan on, hear this, no Democrat would again win the majority of white evangelical support or threaten the same. This has been more true today than ever before. In 2016, 80% of white evangelical voters voted for President Trump based on a CNN exit poll. According to the same poll, 72% of white evangelical voters voted for him in 2020. I even remember as a kid, one of my mentors explaining to me his shock and yet this learning process that he had that a Christian could be a Democrat. This, this is even the space that I'm growing up in. That, that, hey, it just struck me, and this is, I think, actually good. We need not be afraid of it, that, that a Christian can be a Democrat. So this means that as a people, as a church, we confess and our confessions will be skewed in a particular way. It may feel like that. That's because for the past 60 years in this country, the church has been skewed, aligning herself in a particular way. Additionally, a further note on corporate confession, something that we do every week for sure. As modern Western people, I think we, we somewhat understand personal confession, that when I've done something wrong, I, sh- I should admit it. But com- communal confession is foreign to us. Let's consider the attack, that, the attack on the Capitol building last, uh, a couple of weeks ago and see if we can better understand what exactly this means. To the best of my knowledge, none... No one in our church, in our church family, our church members, forced their way into that building personally. So in all likelihood, no one in our church family needs to ask for forgiveness for a particular act of sin. However, that happened on that day. However, New Testament scholar uh, Esau Macaulay wrote uh, a few days ago that we all have a tendency to bend truth for the sake of power. Many of us have done that this election cycle in various ways. I know that I have and have been tempted to do it more. That such a violation we even think is, is somehow ethereal or victimless, but it's not. Macaulay goes on to say, whenever truth bends to power, the poor and the marginalized inevitably suffer. See, in moments like these, we are not seeing nameless, we are not seeing some nameless general curse of sin impact our country. We are seeing the heart and the values and the tendencies of our citizenry and of the American evangelical church on full display. So I may not personally have woven a Confederate flag in the rotunda. I may not think that the election was stolen, but far too often I'm comfortable 
with diminishing truth for the sake of personal gain. This is why we lament, even if we did not ha- do not have personal sin to confess. This is why together as a people, we confess what even has happened to the Christian concept and mind within our country. You see, though we may not be guilty of specific transgressions, we are riddled with the pollution and the polluting desires, affections, and thoughts behind what took place a couple of weeks ago and what has been taking place in the American church for the past 60 years. So before we distance ourselves from what happened and what has been happening and what in all likelihood, save for the grace of God, will continue to happen over the course of this next administration, is that we need to see ourselves, not just you, not just me individually, we need to see ourselves as a people, confess and lament. And why do we do this? Because all have sinned. And our spiritual need is exactly the same. There is no distinction. We all fall short of the glory of God. So enough with both sides. Enough with pointing the finger. Let's start with us, church in the square. Let's start with us. May confession lead us to peace and not a fictional idea of blame leading us to unity. See, in the middle of this political mess and growing animosity, we confess together as the church. Here's what I'd like to suggest that we confess. We confess, instead of loving our neighbors who are directly affected by certain legislations, we disengage from politics, even even believing that it's some moral high road because it doesn't change our privilege and our circumstance. We confess, instead of defending the vulnerable, we protect ourselves. We confessed instead of trusting Jesus Christ, we've we've trusted Donald Trump. We confessed instead of uh, confessing our sin, we blamed Donald Trump for everything over the past four years. We confessed instead of hoping in the kingdom, we've hoped in the glory of our nation being restored by raw power, masculinity, money, and hubris. We confess instead of praying for and seeking the fullness of Jesus' kingdom, we have cherry-picked gospel virtues which fit our political party's talking points. We confess that instead of combating misogyny and racism, we've acted like they don't exist, waiting for things to just work themselves out. We confess instead of listening to our brothers and sisters, we have vilified them. We confess instead of accepting the results of a democratic election, we stormed the Capitol and called it God's will and then compared insurrection with the murder of unarmed black people. We confess instead of submitting to the power of the kingdom, we've submitted to the allure of conspiracy theories that make us feel special. We confess that instead of worshiping Jesus, we've worshiped the cult of Trump's personality and the lasting and these kinds of lasting and fleeting political powers. We confess that instead of lamenting the brokenness of our country's story and heritage, particularly our country's sins against native people and black people, we've told ourselves a glorious fiction of our greatness, of our national innocence, even calling ourselves a Christian nation all the while. But what about no? Pastor, both sides, no. This is the church in America. God forgive us. 
All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And this is how we have sinned. And it scratches the surface, church. This is how we have fallen short of the glory of God in this country. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we go through this? Be clear about this. Especially as a religious group, the church and, and a governing power. Why is it so important that we make sure that the church and the American democratic idea are not wed together, whether Republican or Democrat? Why is it so important that these not be conflated and united? Why must the church of Jesus Christ never align itself with governmental authorities and powers of the day? Because that's how Jesus was killed. That's not why he was killed. That is how Jesus was killed. Let me explain. To be sure, Jesus' death was the will of the Father before time existed. He agreed on the plan of redemption by his grace out of love for his own glory. But it was the Jewish people, God's people, who entertained the powers of the Roman Empire and trusted in them in order to execute our Lord. Psychologist Diane Langenberger, Langberg explains Jesus was so despised that both the Roman Empire and the Jewish nation, who hated each other vehemently, joined forces colluding to kill him because he would not bow to their rule. Or as Professor Miroslav Wolf said, the single most significant factor in determining whether a religion will be implicated in violence is its identification with a political project and its entanglement with those trying to realize and protect that project. Church, We are a people, we are a church entangled with the powers of this country. It led to the murder of our Lord and it is leading us to violence against each other and other image bearers today. This is not all have sinned. This is all are falling short of the glory of God right now. So we confess, God forgive us. Langberg said elsewhere, Words not made flesh are untested words. What she means in the greater context of her lesson, what she she means is that the church today can say there is wrong on both sides, that we've even done wrong personally, but until confession is made flesh through lament and repentance, it is mere sentimentality. You see, we are making war, but Jesus calls us to be makers of peace. And this is, is in fact, what he has done for us first. This is is so beautiful, is that Jesus invites us to be the first, and he's the first one to love. He invites us to be the first to confess because he's the first one to love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, where there was war and violence because of sin, Jesus made peace with God. Jesus himself, then, is the word of God made flesh. And Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, through the political opportunism and violence of his own people, Jesus purchased our peace. 
Therefore, we have everything we need in order to make peace in our day. In fact, that's what Jesus calls us to because he is the maker of peace. Therefore, he can call us to be peacemakers. Matthew 5 verse 9, blessed, Jesus says, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We make peace by receiving the righteousness of God. This is what Paul has been writing about. We make peace by confessing and repenting of our sin, that we are all under sin, that we are all under the law, and the ways that we are falling short of the glory of God. It is not, it is only then that we have the moral integrity and have the courage by God's spirit to speak the truth and to be instruments of grace in this world. See, the good news for us, the church in America, the good news for us who have been soiled by our sin, whose garments have been exposed as dirty and filthy rags, the good news is that when we confess as the church of Jesus, Jesus promises to purify us as his people, as the bride of Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Hear this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And see, as, the, as Paul has, has told us and taught us in Romans that this peace, this righteousness is available to anyone who would simply believe in Jesus Christ, that we can be this church that he is calling us to through confession, through lament, through receiving his righteous salvation. Justin Gibney, the founder and president of the Anne campaign, this week warned against the difference between making peace and seeking comfort. You see, it feels nice and comfortable if we just say all have sinned, there's wrong on both sides. It feels like unity if we can all agree to that. But unity and peace are not achieved through comfort. They are achieved through the cross. So the work of peace only comes through confessing sin and believing that Jesus has nailed it to the cross. Peace only comes through the person, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. Peace only comes when, when our, even our words of confession are incarnating through repentance and works of righteousness. So let's start with us, church in the square. My brother, my sister, let's start with us. May confession lead us to peace. God forgive us. God help us. Amen.